0: Once again, Romans chapter 5 will begin in verse 12. This morning we're going to take up a theologically difficult passage. Uh, the Scottish liberal theologian William Barclay said that no passage of the New Testament has had such an influence on theology as this passage, and no passage is more difficult for the modern mind to understand. So with that in mind, we're going to take up this passage and understand it's difficult. It's difficult for several reasons. First of all, it's difficult because the main thought of the passage, verses twelve through the end of of chapter five, verse twenty one, which we won't get that far today, but the the main thought of the sorry the passage is interrupted by a parenthetical argument that seems to sidetrack the reader and, and take away from the main thrust of the passage, and the, that's the main reason why it's difficult to deal with. The second reason why it is difficult to deal with. It's because a whole lot of controversial theolo- theology has been founded on these verses. A lot of bad ideas have come from these verses. We're going to look at today. A lot of errant doctrine has come from these passages, and and we're going to deal with. Well, I'm not, there's no way for me to deal with all of that. There's no way for me to take the time to. Refute every false doctrine that has arisen from these verses. One key primary false doctrine that has arisen from this passage is the doctrine of infant baptism. I will deal with that briefly as we go through this morning's lesson. We're going to do our best to cover these verses and establish truth. I believe that truth will always cause error to fall away. I believe that if you can see truth, you always. We'll call error into question. There's no better inoculation against false doctrine than simply to be taught true doctrine according to Scripture. So that's the way we'll approach the passage. Now, one factor that could cause me not to go as deep as I might would normally go in these verses is the fact that in just two weeks we're going to change everything. We're going to take a five-week break from this study. And I would like very much to complete chapter 5. The bulk of the theology and the rest of chapter 5 lies in the next three verses. We're going to cover that this morning, and then we'll try to finish chapter 5 next week. Amen? The bulk of the remainder of chapter 5 is built around a comparison between Adam and Jesus Christ. Upon hearing the gospel message, upon being told that we are all sinners, we have all fallen short of the glory of God, we are all guilty before God, but we can all be saved by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. One might, upon hearing that, ask the question then, how can the actions of one man so widely impact all of humanity? How can it be that by one man's death on a cross, all of humanity could be saved? In order to establish the veracity of that, in order to establish the truthfulness of justification through faith in Jesus Christ for all of humanity, Paul turns back to Genesis, and he goes back to Adam, and he demonstrates that all of humanity is under sin because of Adam. If one man can bring all of humanity under the curse of sin, then the logic follows that one man can also deliver us all from sin. Therein lies the reason for the contrast between Adam and Jesus Christ. If we can accept the fact that the sin of one man has brought the curse of sin upon the whole world, then we can surely believe that the atoning death of Jesus Christ has brought the hope of salvation to the whole world. The whole purpose of the rest of chapter 5 is to increase our confidence in the sufficiency of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. It doesn't take anything else to save us from our sins. Amen? Beginning with verse 12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. Verse 13 starts that parenthetical Uh, expression or argument that I talked about that kind of disrupts the flow of the passage. It says, For until the law, sin was established. I'm sorry. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression who is the figure of him that was to come? And we're going to stop right there this morning. Let me give you uh, the exposition of what we just read. I'll start with verse twelve. We're going to read it again to put it freshly in your mind. Brother Dennis is going to put it on the screen behind me. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. The main point. Everything that we're going to talk about this week and next week. The main point is established here. All of mankind is under sin. And all of mankind needs to be justified by faith. All of mankind needs salvation. Everybody. There is nobody that exempt that is exempt. There's nobody that was ever born that did not need the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse them from sin. The teaching of chapter 5 goes a step further than the teaching of chapter 3, which we covered several weeks ago. Chapter 3 established the fact that all men have sin, but chapter 5 teaches that we were all born under the curse of a sin nature. There's a difference here. When, when Paul refers to sin in chapter 5, he's not referring just to the sinful acts that we commit, but rather to the sinful nature of, that we have inherited from Adam. It's important to understand this at the outset because if all that chapter 5 is talking about is sinful acts, then it is nothing more than a restatement of chapter 3 and it does nothing to further Paul's argument in any way. But that's not the case. Paul's not just retelling what he already told us in chapter 3. He's building, he's advancing his argument that all men need The atoning death of Jesus Christ. There is no doubt. We are all guilty because we have all sinned. All of us have committed sinful acts. But the sinful acts that we commit are not the heart of the problem. They're just symptoms of a deeper root problem. Symptoms, you know, when you go to the doctor and you walk into the doctor's office and he doesn't say do you have the flu, he says, what's going on? And you begin to tell him, and you don't say, well, I've got the flu. You say, well, I've got the sniffles and runny nose, and I I just generally feel bad, amen? I just can't get up and go. And after a little while, the symptoms lead the doctor to the diagnosis of the disease. The symptoms point to the disease, the sin in your life, the sin that you've committed, the things that you've done in rebellion against God are the symptoms of a greater disease. Now, the truth about symptoms is this. You can treat them, and they may even go away. But if you don't treat the disease, the symptom is going to come back. Amen? The disease has to be dealt with in order to defeat the symptoms. In this case, the disease is the sin nature. It is what you inherited from Adam. The sin nature has impacted all of humanity ever since the garden. Because of the actions of one man, Adam's sin, and all of humanity is forever impacted by Adam's sin. We are all born with a sin nature. Now, if you paid attention in Sunday school, you might want to raise your hand here and ask why we put the blame on Adam Instead of Eve, I mean, didn't she sin first? I remember very well my Sunday school lessons. There are several answers to that question. First of all, Adam was the head of Eve, he was the head of the family, he was the representative of the entire human race. Eve came out of Adam, Eve was produced from Adam's body, as was Adam all of the rest of humanity. Because of that Adam's actions had legal consequences for all of his descendants. His actions covered all of humanity. As a matter of fact in in Hebrew Adam's name means humanity. The The point there is that the whole of humanity existed in Adam. All of humanity would descend from Adam. When Adam's sin caused Adam to be alienated from God, caused Adam to be cut off from the presence of God. In effect, all of humanity was cut off from God. All of humanity was alienated from God. It was Adam's sin that mattered, not Eve's. Now, the second way to deal with that, and probably the better theological answer, is that according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 14, Eve was deceived into sinning, but Adam was not. The word used there means faked out. You know, the the football player is running down the field and he's got the ball, and he jogs one way, and the defender goes that way, but he was never really going that way. He turns and goes the other way. He fakes him out. That's the kind of terminology that's used to describe how Eve was Faked out by Satan. She was deceived by Satan. She was literally tricked by the cunning wiles of that serpent. But Adam, he was not deceived. When Eve came to Adam and said, I've sinned, I've partaken of the fruit, I've failed, I've transgressed God's law. Adam sinned with her deliberately. It was a conscious violation of the commandment of God. Now, I don't have the time. If I did, I would. I don't have the time to elaborate on on the point that that Adam chose to sin. But there's a trick, there's a there's a wonderful truth enclosed in this little story and I'm going to encapsulate it in just a a few sentences let me say it this way essentially Adam chose to suffer death with Eve because that's how much he loved her it's got to be the greatest love story ever told between two human beings in the paradise of the garden with the promise of an eternal time spent In that wonderful paradise, Adam turns his back on all of it. Because he recognizes that Eve, this woman whom God has given him to be his wife, has now sinned. And she is going to face death. And Adam said, I won't let you face that alone. Adam, for his great love for Eve, chose to sin. Now that's important. Because Jesus Christ, the second man, Adam, also chose because of his great love for his bride to suffer death with her. Amen. Jesus Christ chose the cross because of how much he loved humanity. The love that Christ has for the church is the same, but it is infinitely greater than the love that Adam had for Eve. What a what a tremendous truth encapsulated in the scripture. And we don't we don't have the time to fully explore it this morning, but Adam chose, knowing that he was going to transgress the law of God, knowing that he would face the penalty of sin and death, knowing that he was going to put himself in a place of separation from God, Adam chose Eve. And he chose to sin. That's why we say sin came by Adam, not by Eve. But the point here is that death entered by sin. Humans were not originally subject to death. Adam was not going to die in the garden. He was going to live forever with God. But as a result of Adam's sin, Adam would die, Eve would die, And all of Adam's descendants would suffer death because according to God's eternal law, the wages of sin is death. Amen. That was the result or that was the penalty for sin. Sin demands death. And so that's something that God had made Adam and Eve aware of long before Eve ever partook of the fruit of the garden or fruit of the tree. He told them at the very beginning, If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. Amen. It was settled in the word of God. It was settled in the law of God. And so when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they died. The death that they experienced was twofold. They experienced an immediate spiritual death that is signified by the fact that they were separated physically from God. Immediately they were cut off. From the presence of God, and they suffered an eventual physical death. They would die. Satan told Eve, he "said You'll you'll not surely die if you eat the fruit." And and she didn't die the minute she partook of the fruit. She died spiritually, and she would ultimately she would die physically at a later date. From that day forward, Paul tells us, all of humanity would be subject to death. Even born-again believers, even people who turn their life over to Jesus Christ, who are no longer spiritually dead, will still face physical death. It is appointed unto every man, the Scripture says, once to die, then to face the judgment. We inherited that from Adam. When sin came in, death reigned through sin. The death sentence was passed to every man. Because all of sin, David Bernard says it this way. He says, this apparently means that everyone is subject to death because in some sense, everyone has sinned in Adam. Everyone has inherited a sin nature from Adam. All men are subject to the law of sin and the judgment of sin because they are the descendants of Adam. One theologian put it this way. We are not sinners because we commit sins. We commit sins because we are sinners. That sin nature is the disease. The sin is the symptom. We were all born with a sin nature. We were all, no child was ever born that manifested the fruits of the Spirit naturally. We were all born with a sin nature. We were all born with that capacity to sin. The main point that Paul is making here is that we have no basis in ourselves to expect salvation. We can't earn it, we can't merit it, and we've never deserved it. We are sinners. Amen? We we can't expect God to save us on the basis of anything that we have done. We were born in the lineage of Adam and are sinners by virtue of the sin nature. Let me tell you what this verse doesn't mean. It does not mean that God will judge you for Adam's sin. You will never stand in judgment and be condemned because of the sinful actions of Adam. Adam's sin will not condemn you. You will be judged and you will be condemned if your life is not covered by the blood of Jesus because of your own sins. Amen. Your own deliberate acts of rebellion against God will be all that is necessary to condemn you in the judgment. Amen. The argument that's been made here is not that you are guilty of the sin of Adam, not that you have inherited Adam's guilt, but rather that you are a sinner because you inherited that sin nature from Adam. You were born spiritually dead. That sin nature lives inside of you. You inherited that from Adam. That nature, the sin nature, compels you to sin. That nature that drives you, that compulsion that controls you and that pushes you towards sin, that was transferred to you by Adam. The power of the sin nature is demonstrated by physical death. We inherited death from Adam. And even though we're born again, we still suffer death because of the legacy of Adam. Death is the lasting testimony to the reality of the sin nature. Now, it needs to be noted here. The sin nature that we're talking about is more than just a tendency to sin. It's more than just a predisposition to sin. It's more than just a a general tendency that can be overcome by the human will. You, you can determine to do good. You can deal with the symptom. You can set yourself to live right without the power of God and without the grace of God, and you may be able for a space of time to do so, but ultimately you're going to return to sin because you haven't dealt with the disease. The sin nature is the thing that compels you to sin. When I say that you're a sinner by the sin nature, what I mean is you have an active compulsion, an inner drive that compels you to sin. You have a compulsion to eat. Try to go without eating. Lord knows I don't miss very many meals. Amen. That compulsion drives you. You have a nature, a sin nature, that drives you to sin. Paul described it quite literally in another passage as being enslaved to sin. A slave doesn't have any choice. A slave does what the master says to do. And a sinner sins because he's under the unshakable power of sin. He's under that compulsion of sin. I come to tell you there's only one answer to the sin nature. There's only one thing that can break the power of the sin nature. It's not the human will. It's not psychology. It's not any medicine a doctor can prescribe you. There's only one thing that can break the power of the sin nature. And that one thing is the life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The power of the Holy Ghost is the only thing that could break the sin nature. What's happened in this passage is that all of humanity is being divided into two streams. One of which flows from Adam and bears the legacy of sin and death the other of which flows from Jesus Christ and bears the legacy of grace and life. In our flesh, we stand in solidarity with Adam. Because of the sin nature, we are in Adam's stream. And if nothing changes in our lives, we'll suffer the same fate that Adam suffered. We will be eternally separated from God. But Jesus Christ through His death on the cross has made a way that we can stand in solidarity with Him. We can be saved from the condemnation of sin by the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When we repent of our sins, amen, we join Him in His death. We die out to the flesh. When we're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, we're buried with Him in baptism. And when we're filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost, amen, that spirit of resurrection and life comes into us and by that death, burial and resurrection we no longer live after the flesh and we're no longer subject to the sin nature we no longer stand in solidarity with Adam but now we stand in solidarity with Jesus Christ and we've been loosed from the power of that sin nature that's the point of the comparison between Adam and Jesus in God's eyes There are only two kinds of people. Those who stand in the lineage of Adam and those who stand in the lineage of Jesus Christ. It's your choice where you end up. It's your choice where you stand. One of the doctrinal errors that arises from this passage, and I said I'd deal with it, is the idea that we inherit guilt from Adam. Some teach that we're actually guilty of Adam's sin. They believe that God imputes Adam's sin and Adam's guilt to us. The Roman Catholic Church teaches this. Many Orthodox churches teach this. Even some Protestant churches teach this, particularly those that believe in predestination. The problem here is the belief that God would condemn you on the basis of something other than your own guilt. The main problem with that line of thinking is that when it is carried to its logical conclusion, it leads to the belief that infants are guilty before God. The misinterpretation of that passage is the main basis for the doctrine of infant baptism. Infants are baptized in an effort to absolve them of the guilt of Adam that is not our view that is not the view of this church we believe that all men will be held accountable for their own actions we also believe that there's a difficult to define point where a person reaches an age of accountability where they are consciously aware of their own sin and become guilty of their own sin each person if they live long enough will reach that place and when they do There is no question of whether or not they will sin because they have a sin nature. And by virtue of that sin nature, they become guilty of their own sin. The bottom line is this then. We inherit a sin nature from Adam, but we don't inherit his guilt. We are guilty enough on our own. I've done enough wrong in my life. I don't need to be condemned for what Adam did. And infants while they have a sin nature and while they are born with a sin nature, cannot have the capacity to sin for themselves since they have no knowledge of the law. And that's exactly where we go in verse 13. Verse 13 says, For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Now this is a digression from the original thought. Paul stops midstream to explain that sin and death reigned in the world even before the law of Moses. The point here is applicable to the discussion of infants because God does not impute sin in the absence of law. Sin in its most basic definition is the transgression of the law of God. And God does not hold anyone accountable for sin where there is no law to define sin. There is no personal guilt where there is no personal violation of the law. Now it needs to be noted what that means. The final phrase of verse 13 does not say the law. First phrase... For until the law, that's the law of Moses, for until the law, sin was in the world. So what he's saying is, in between Adam and Moses, there was still sin. But sin is not imputed when there is no law. This law, second time, he doesn't say the law. He's not appealing to the law of Moses. That final phrase means the principle of law. God does not impute sin. Or he does not assign value to sin where there is no law. That doesn't mean that God didn't count sin before the law of Moses. He said it first. Sin was in the world between Adam and Moses. Even before God gave the law to Moses, God gave man an understanding of his law. How? We discussed this back in chapter 3. And in chapter 1, he gave them an understanding of his law through the law of conscience. Man was built with an awareness. Man was made by God with an inner awareness of what pleases God. It's been wrong in every culture of humanity to murder somebody. It's just built into the conscience. There are some things that are abhorable, that are abominable, abominable in the eyes of man. There are some things that man has always recognized. You just don't do that. You just don't go there. There are some things you just don't do, amen. It was built into the very conscience of man, and and, and Paul has already established the fact that humanity is guilty whether they have the law of Moses or not because they have the law of conscience. But where this this applies is with that infant that we were talking about just a minute ago. The age of accountability would be the point when a child recognizes the law of conscience. When a child grasps the ramifications of transgressing that which they know is wrong. That's where you become accountable for sin. And so it goes on in verse 14. This is as far as we'll go today. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression. Not that they hadn't sinned, but they didn't sin like Adam sinned, who is the figure of him that was to come. So before God gave the law to Moses, Death reigned over the descendants of Adam. All of humanity suffered death. I said it earlier this morning. You might have missed it, so I'm going to say it again. Death is the evidence of the sin nature. All the evidence that's needed to demonstrate that sin was in the world from Adam to Moses is that men died. Because death is the result of sin. And so Paul Paul points out that not everybody sinned like Adam sinned. It wasn't always after the similitude to Adam's transgression. What was the difference? Adam's transgression was God told him specifically, don't do this, and Adam did it. So in that time between Adam and Moses, there wasn't a law. There wasn't a list of thou shalt nots, but there were still people that sinned. They didn't sin just like Adam sinned. They sinned against the law of conscience. They sinned against that understanding that's built into them. Now, But, but it doesn't say all of them sinned that way. That if, they, if, not, that if there were some that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, that would lead you to believe then there were some that did. There were some somewhere in that, that passage from Adam to Moses where God spoke to them, and they transgressed God's law too. It doesn't really matter how they sinned. What matters is everyone who lived in that time period died. And that's the evidence, then, that there was sin. Amen? The final phrase of the verse, who is the figure of him that was to come, tells us that Adam is a type or a pattern of Jesus Christ. Adam was the firstborn of humanity. He was the head, the representative of the whole human race. But Adam failed terribly. He sinned. And we carry the legacy of his sin. Jesus Christ is the second man, Adam. He came as the second head of the human race and the firstborn of all those who are born again. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'm just going to read it, Dennis, if you can put it behind me. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to start with verse 45 and go through verse 49. I'm not going to take the time to elaborate. I'm just going to read what the scripture says. 1 Corinthians 15, 45-49, it says, And so it is written, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is of the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. And as is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly. And as we've borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Two streams, two kinds of people, those that are in Adam and those that are in Jesus Christ. We have all borne the earthly image of Adam. We have all borne the image of that natural man, but we are called to bear the image of the spiritual man. We're called to bear the image of Jesus Christ. That's the vivid contrast between Adam and Jesus. Whatever we lost in Adam, we have gained in Jesus Christ. We came under sin and death by one man, by Adam, but we obtained righteousness and life through the death of the one man, Jesus Christ. The main point of today's passage, which is probably the most theologically significant of the remainder of chapter 5, and the main point of everything we'll cover next week, is the comparison between Adam and Jesus Christ. What Paul is doing is establishing the truthfulness of the claim that we can be made righteous by the death of Jesus Christ. By the sinless death of one man, we can be saved on basis on the basis of the fact that by the sin of one man, we were all made sinners. And if all of humanity was made sinners in Adam, then all of humanity can find salvation in Jesus Christ. Paul's main point, is that the human race inherited a horrible sin nature and death from Adam. But what has been inherited from Adam has been completely dealt with by the gracious, atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. However bad the legacy of Adam is, the legacy of Jesus Christ is that much more greater and better. Jesus died on the cross for sinners the just for the unjust and that single act of righteousness has provided the means by which the horrible reality of the sin nature can be counteracted all of the consequences of Adam's sin are answered in the cross of Jesus Christ spiritual death is conquered by a new birth by being born again And physical death is overcome by the promise of eternal life in Jesus Christ. And all of that is encapsulated in the gospel. Repent. Be baptized in his name. You're filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What a powerful promise. Would you stand with me?